Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Amelia Smith Reinhardt, Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Faculty Research and Development at the University of Utah S.J. Quinney College of Law. We will discuss her paper, E. Bement and Sons versus National Harrow Company, the first skirmish between patent law and the Sherman Act, which she prepared for the Forgotten IP Symposium organized by Shuba Ghosh and Zvi Rosen and was published in the Syracuse Law Review. So welcome, Amelia. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you on the on the podcast. I really enjoyed reading your paper for the symposium, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about it again because uh, it's Wonderful. a really, really cool story. Um, but a lot of things that might be unfamiliar with some listeners who aren't steeped in 19th century agricultural technology and sure. the early years of U.S. patent law. So I was wondering if you could start by just describing what is a harrow anyway? How do they work? What are they for? <laughs> um, a harrow is a basic farm implement. Um, I uh, grew up on a fair large piece of property, but I was not a farmer's daughter. Uh, my dad's an accountant. Um, but it's a, um, a farm implement that is meant to um, soften the soil or till it up. Um, and so it's shallower than a plow. Um, so a plow makes deep rows for planting and harrows are just meant to kind of get your soil ready for whatever you might be doing with it. Is that a good enough answer? Yeah. Okay. I think that's <laughs> probably, that's probably as good as we're going to do on a, yeah. <laughs> without looking at a picture or seeing someone use it or something. Um, so, okay. So were harrows important in the time period you're talking about and what do they had, what did they have to do with patents? Um, yeah, so they were uh, really important as far as I can tell, um, because this was prior to um, the the sort of modern farm machinery that we think of today, sort of where we see combines or tractors that have sort of different attachments that do different things. Um, farmers had to have these sort of different implements around to do these kinds of different tasks. Um, and typically, uh, before the Civil War, these types of things were made on site by your farm blacksmith, or I guess your local blacksmith that traveled around making these things for you. Um, and at some point, sort of along with um, similar changes in other types of implement manufacturing, people started manufacturing these things sort of on a grander scale than simply on-site production by blacksmiths. Um, and so uh, right after the Civil War, um, a fellow named David Garver um, invented what we now call the spring tooth harrow, uh, which meant um, it was bouncier. Um, and so it kind of had a, um, a design that allowed it to sort of um, bounce off of large boulders in the soil or other sorts of things um, that sort of enabled farmers to drag these things along behind a mule team, likely, um, that would sort of... Um, enhance their ability to sort of break up the soil in those kinds mm -hmm. of ways. Um, and that was an innovative technology that he patented. Um, and then that sort of begets the whole Harrow patent world. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the Harrow industry, <laughs> as it were, during the period of time that you're talking about. Because I think that's a really important part of the story you're telling. It Both is. Both the sort of to me, really surprising amount of innovation in yeah. harrow, harrow technology, as it were, as well as the proliferation of 
this incredible number of companies that seem to be involved in the market. Yeah. So I, you know, I think Harrow's, and this is probably likely true of plows, you know, I haven't looked into tons of farm implement uh, patents pooling situations. Um, but I think these are very simple technologies that um, are ripe for simple improvements. Um, and as people use um, innovative turns, like we might see in, in the Garver design, um, people sort of discover very small ways that they can improve things. Um, and those improvements then beget other improvements. Um, and then people in the industry are sort of looking for what is the um, best harrow on the market um, that I can possibly procure, sort of understanding that these changes and improvements don't really impact price a whole ton. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so, so the the Garver uh, turn to have the uh, springiness, sort of the bounciness of the this particular style of harrow, um, was then improved by a fellow named Reed, um, who thought of um, having it adjustable in height, um, so you could kind of move it up and down, sort of depending on how deep you were trying to get into the soil in terms of tilling it, etc. Um, and then there were a variety of other very, very small improvements that were made over time. Um, as people sort of are procuring patents on their particular improvements, they're having to also uh, pay a royalty over to Garver and then Reed for his improvements later in the industry. Um, and so it became a very... Um, a, a classic blocking patent sort of scenario um, where we had some sort of basic pioneer patents that folks owned and were charging royalties for and suing people for infringement for. And then others who created improvements that um, lots of folks wanted to use. And those folks were trying to royal uh, get royalties on those improvements as well. Um, so that created also, and then sort of the, the additional layer of it being a very easy technology um, to, to understand and to improve upon, um, I think created the proliferation of different styles of harrows, all kind of basically doing the same thing. Um, And so it's um, an easy industry to take a look at, um, Mm -hmm. which I thought was great. I didn't know that when I first chose it as my forgotten patent case. I I thought the Supreme Court opinion was very interesting. I knew nothing about harrows. In fact, I didn't even know it was um, about harrows all that (laughs) deeply. Um, I know it's it's, um, really taking a deep dive into a patent pool like this, where you understand um, how the technology was invented and um, how those things are manufactured and how they're distributed really impact the patenting story of those pieces of technology as well. Um, And so that's, I think that's easier to understand in some of these older sort of easy to understand technologies, but I think the same exact phenomenon occurs um, across the board, even in very, 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 um, fancy high-tech um, inventions that are happening today. Right, right. Well, before we before we get to the Supreme Court case and sort of its relevance today, um, <clears throat> I was wondering if you could say a little something about what a blocking patent is and why blocking patents would have been relevant given the pl- proliferation of Harrow patents in relation to this sort of crowded marketplace in the in the mid to late 19th century. Yeah, so um, blocking patents generally um, are thought of as um, sort of um, two parties who both want to use each other's patents and they have to get permission from each other. 
So in this particular context, we would have our um, first pioneer patentees, um, Garver and Reed, who uh, license folks to manufacture Harrow's under their patent. And then those licensees then create improvements that they patent. And if anyone using the Garver and Reed version want to use the improvement, they then have to pay um, or become a licensee of the improver. Um, and so if those folks don't give each other permission, they will block each other from operating at all. Um, and so that's why we might use the term blocking patent. Um, if the improvement is innovative enough, then of course we will come to some arrangement where permission is given. Um, but it kind of sets up a scenario where the, the parties have to do a very important negotiation dance. Um, and so in the Harrow industry, it really looked like we had these initial pioneers um, who were granting non-exclusive licenses to folks, but not others. Then we had a large group of infringers who were not taking the license from Garver and Reed. Um, and those were being pursued in infringement actions. And those would get settled into licensees um, somewhat. And then we had people sort of outside of that um, creating improvements as well. And it sort of ended up with a large group of patent holders on very, very small slices of this particular type of implement. Um, what we might call today a patent thicket um, in some ways. Right. Right. So uh, for better or for worse, sort of a natural consequence of this kind of proliferation, but also sort of traditional, what we traditionally think of as patent ownership, licensing, and enforcement. But you, you use the term patent pool, um, which is, I guess, kind of the antithesis to or complement antithesis. I'm not sure how you'd say it in to, to a patent thicket. Um, and Sometimes a solution. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes so, an aggravation. So what is a patent pool in general and sort of what was the nature of the patent pool in the hero industry? Yeah. So a, um, a patent pool in general would be um, a group of patent owners who get together um, and form an entity or assign their patents to one of them to be a patent holder that then operates on behalf of all of the patentees or in all of the patentees' interests um, singularly. Um, and so um, today we sort of think of a patent pools um, maybe a little bit differently than we may have thought of them at the time of the, um, the Harrow uh, patent owners getting together. But that's all that a patent pool is. It's a, a group of folks who own patents getting together and operating as one. And how they may operate might look differently depending on the industry. It might be that we form an LLC to hold all of our patents as partners or LLP or whatever. Um, or it might be that we create a wholly separate organization um, to hold our patents. Um, or we assign them all to one of us. And then that person then pays back um, you know, through um, profit sharing or some other mechanism. Um, so it's a way to group patents together to have all of the rights in one place to solve some of these transactional cost problems that might arise when you have many, many patent owners in a particular industry trying to operate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that in the Harrow context, um, it became clear that the high number of patents um, for these sort of simplistic inventions was becoming problematic and costing companies more in litigation fees um, than they were making on Harrow sales. And that's usually a good indicator that you should settle some of the litigation or figure out some way to make it go away. 
Um, and the way that they thought of to make it go away um, was to create a national Harrow company that would hold all of the patents um, and have all of these manufacturers sell their patents to the holding company, to the, to the national company, and receive back exclusive licenses for the particular Harrow's that they were manufacturing. Uh-huh. So that's how the National Harrow Company was born. Yeah. So in theory, that should kind of resolve all these problems and make everything more efficient. But it seems that in practice, not everyone was playing along. <laughs> um, you know what they say about cartels, right? You're only uh, you're only good until somebody defects. Um, and so I think that that's kind of um, what was going on here for the National Harrow Company um, is that the way they set up the exclusive licenses back um, to the original patent owners was all fine and good, um, except that there were people um, who, first off, didn't own patents but wanted to be part of the mix. Um, and so Bement was one of these um, companies. They had an exclusive license to a patent that they thought was quite valuable, and Bement, um, the National Harrow Company, didn't want to value it at the level that they wanted to value it. So for them to enter the organization, um, they would have to give up capital stock um, mm. and the right to capital stock if they sort of gave up that exclusive, if they gave up the value in that exclusive license that they owned. Other people that owned patents simply assigned their patent over to the company and received back capital stock. Um, and some payment of royalties off the top of the company's share. Um, but all of those decisions were made by an arbitrator, as they, they call it in the court record. Um, and I think that many of those decisions might have been unfair um, or perceived as unfair to some of the people in the pool. Um, and so if you perceived yourself as getting less of a cut than you thought you were entitled to, um, then I think you had some incentive to defect from the pool um, to uh, disregard some of the conditions in your license back to the pool um, or to not release that license um, to the company in the first place and sort of operate outside of the pool. Um, so that's how we get some of the earlier state litigation um, on um, licenses that were broken, uh, people who didn't want to be in the pool were being sued for infringement, et cetera. Right. It seems like perhaps not all that uncommon for people to overvalue their property in relation to other people's property. This is not a, an unfamiliar story. Law yeah. For sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. So a big part of your paper also deals with, with the Sherman Act um, and its relevance to patent law and patent pooling and sort of the mechanics of patent pooling in particular. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit of something about kind of what the Sherman Act was why it was sort of uh, important slash contentious at the moment in question and sort of what role it played in relation to patent pooling and why? Yeah, so the um, the Sherman Act um, is enacted in 1890. Um, but for um, folks who sort of examine this period in U.S. history, sort of look at um, some earlier trusts sort of developing um, after the Civil War. So it was sort of a big part of Congress's conversations leading up until 1890 as well. Um, but there were some concerns that um, 
single um, operators like Standard Oil or the National Harrow Company, or um, you know, there are a few congressional hearings looking at 100 trusts in America: the Whiskey Trust, um, the Sugar Trust. Um, I'm going to start some bands named after all of the trusts that they were looking at for sure. Um, glass, uh, lots of different sort of ways that we might think of um, groups of folks who are doing things that concerned um, Congress and some of our other leaders um, in terms of manipulating capitalism in a way that might harm consumers um, with regard to lessened competition or possibly increased prices. Um, so that was kind of the focus in Congress. Um, and and as Congress sort of worked through mechanisms that it might use um, to reduce some of this activity, what they landed on was what we now know as the Sherman Act, which has not changed at all since 1890. Um, some of our interpretations of it have changed a little bit, um, but it essentially has two sections. Um, it has more now, um, but section one deals with um, cartelizing uh, group restraints in trade. Um, combinations and restraint of trade um, are prohibited. Um, and then part two is monopolizing is prohibited. Um, and so all of our Sherman Act jurisprudence since then is sort of trying to figure out exactly what those um, sections are trying to police. Um, so the, the problem with patent law folks it, sitting around in 1890 is that they have operated for at least 100 years with exclusive rights. Um, exclusive rights to make, use, and sell um, and import into the U.S. their patented inventions. Um, and so many of those uh, exclusive rights had been used to restrain trade um, in a perfectly legal manner using the exclusive rights of patenting um, and also had been used to develop um, relatively large and important monopolies. Um, and so as the Sherman Act was being discussed and enacted, there's a whole nother group of people sort of wondering how their exclusive rights would be impacted by this um, parallel piece of federal legislation, right? So patent law federal, um, antitrust federal as well. Um, and how were uh, patent rights going to be affected by these new, um, uh, li new liability for restraints in trade um, or monopolizing? So the National Harrow Company was formed, um, probably not coincidentally, in the fall of 1890, um, as we sort of saw many folks, many capitalists get very, very rich on these types of sort of pools of things, including patents, um, and they decide to create a patent pool over these Harrows um, with, I think, and I believe this truly, uh, benevolent intentions at some level to really get themselves out of the litigation business, right? To be in the Harrow competition business, but to sort of stop all of the nasty infringement litigations. Um, I think that at least was part of their um, focus in terms of making the company. Of course, they wanted to make money, uh, but they were kind of all making money also um, separately. Yeah, two great tastes that go great together. Exactly, it, just all, it all works out. Um, and so as they create the patent pool, um, I think some of these defecting licensees or folks who they called outsiders also who were never licensees in the first place who did not want to join the company, I think they started thinking about ways that they could um, use the Sherman Act um, as a way to dismantle 
the Harrow Trust, as it was called mm. in the papers. Um, and so the initial um, licensee who gets out of it, um, a guy named William Strait, who um, uh, ran a company that has uh, a great name um, called the Chilled Clipper Plow Company, um, mm. He decides to sue them, and he uses a state law contract action um, to suggest that their licenses are void as against public policy because they are restraints in trade. Um, He succeeds at the state law level, um, but that sort of invites us to sort of wonder, again, how the Sherman Act might be used to police some of this stuff at a grander level, right, at the the national company level. Um, And so it's really bemint as... um, a party who refuses to join the company um, and um, is finally able to sort of have this Sherman Act conversation had at the Supreme Court. These other cases were state law cases. Again, there's sort of an underlaying um, notion of federalism going on in these cases that I think should not be overlooked too. Um, And so these folks are steeped in a private law world Right, where contracts kind of govern what's going on as between private parties and patent infringement is a wholly separate sphere of federal law. And as we start talking about dismantling some of these licenses, we're really kind of talking about both contract law and patent law and how do they interact. And now we've added the federal legislation of the Sherman Act. Um, huh. So I'm not, did I answer your question? I'm yes, not, yeah, okay. well, absolutely. So, so, so just to kind of, briefly sum up and and kind of redirect a little bit you know Sherman Act is essentially a synonym for antitrust law sure and as you as you point out in your paper there's this sort of inherent tension between antitrust law and patent law and I was wondering if you could sort of just just briefly talk about the nature of that tension and why it exists and the kinds of arguments that some of the outsiders from the Harrow Trust were making about why the uses or what particular kinds of uses the Harrow Trust was making of its patents were violations of antitrust law. Yeah, so the the tension, I think, um, is something that we have sort of seen um, come up again and again over the years. Um, Michael Carrier talks um, a a fair amount about this in his book about um, pharmaceutical pricing. Um, But it's uh, this the idea of exclusive rights being given to a patent owner and their ability to exclude others from making, using, and selling things in particular that seems, at least in theory, to be counter to our antitrust laws that say restraining trade, right, uh, preventing people from doing things, keeping people out of markets, uh, creating barriers to entry that seem unfair, um, that those types of things will be policed by the Sherman Act. Um, and so, uh, you know, some folks could say there's um, that these things are um, uh, in, in tension. Um, I might suggest that they can work together if we sort of have the right um, policy view of, of, of both of them, right? So what is patent law hmm. trying to do? It is trying to encourage innovation. It's trying to encourage inventions so or thinking about the incentives that patents are meant to provide to potential inventors and the promotion of progress and sort of tie it back to its constitutional call. Um, 
antitrust law is really doing something very different, right? It is trying to, you know, depending on who you talk to, of course, there's different ideas about whether we're trying to address consumer harm or whether we're really trying to sort of police the sizes of businesses or sort of taking some brandis and view. Um, but however you want to think about antitrust law, it's not encouraging innovation, right? It's a very different goal. Um, it's really policing something, right? It is um, policing size or it's policing uh, prices or it's policing um, uh, consumer harm or, or something in that vein. Um, mm. And I don't think that the two are um, necessarily um, mutually exclusive in terms of sort of um, where we're heading with uh, protections. Um, and I think that you get a sense of that even in the Bement opinion and why I thought that it was a really interesting case um, to think about and to write on. It just ended up that the industry was very interesting in and of itself from a historical perspective. Um, but the Bement um, court and its opinion um, really talks about how important patents are to our society and to our economy. Um, and it talks about um, how important we think the Sherman Act might be in policing some of the ills of capitalism that we had kind of seen grow into these trusts. Um, and that as long as we sort of protected those spheres, we could sort of operate both of them hand in hand. Um, I think that there is some difficulty in doing that on the ground, right? That sounds great in theory, uh, but as we see the cases sort of progress from 1902, the Bement case, um, sort of through um, Standard Oil and 1912, and sort of thinking of some of the later cases that come along in the mid 20th century, we really see the Supreme Court trying to work out the details of how these two parallel regimes are going to work, um, and how are we going to think about um, antitrust law, and it has to have a, an element of reasonableness, right, our rule of reason, in order to accommodate the exclusive rights that we're going to preserve for patent owners. Um, and so I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but I do think that it requires a very careful working out of how we're going to treat patent owners um, under the Sherman Act's uh, prohibitions. Right, right, great. Yeah, so if I'm reading your, if I read your paper correctly, it, I took you to be saying that one of the reasons that this case was kind of misunderstood for a long time, perhaps until you helped us understand it better, was the fact that it was much more fact specific than it was later kind of characterized as. I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about what the Supreme Court actually did in Bement and sort of how that ricocheted through the sort of patent antitrust discussion um, in the subsequent years. Yeah. So what the Supreme Court does in Bement is it, it, it's important to frame this as a contract action. This is neither a patent case nor an antitrust case that are originally on the procedure, right? Um, so this is a contract case that gets then appealed um, up through the Court of Appeals of New York into the Supreme Court. Um, and the Supreme Court um, first does something very interesting, which allows for the Sherman Act to be a defense in a regular state contract action. Um, so that was kind of a, a case of first impression um, and sort of arose um, through the types of facts that we see here. Um, but it sort of frames patents as very, very important um, and then talks about this particular license as being fully within the rights of a patent owner. Um, and so by examining only the single license, um, the Supreme Court really had no grounds for finding 
a combination and restraint of trade or the sorts of things that it felt like the Sherman Act was really um, directed toward. Um, that seems to me to be embracing what it later adopts as a rule of reason in antitrust cases, um, where we're going to look at um, the impact or the anti-competitiveness of the behavior before we decide whether, in fact, this combination is a restraint in trade. Um, and so that kind of carries through to some of the later opinions, sort of looking at this overlap between patent and antitrust law. Um, What's interesting about the case and what I found interesting about it and why I wanted to study it is that we often take this little tiny piece of language from the case that says patent owners can kind of do whatever they want to do, and that's totally fine, and it immunizes them from antitrust um, uh, liability. Um, and lots of folks want to use that language, right, when they want to protect themselves from liability under the Sherman Act, but placed in context that's such a small part of what's actually going on in this case. Um, and the, the pure fact that the case didn't have on its own docket all of the licenses in issue and how they were being used in that particular market. It was only examining this one particular license that Bemet was involved in. Um, that really takes away um, from what the court is sort of saying, sort of contextualizing exactly what's going on. Um, I don't think you could characterize this particular court, um, sort of the opinion written by Justice Peckham, as being pro-patent and anti-Sherman Act. Um, you know, mm -hmm. sort of a, a deeper reading of the case sort of enables us to see those two um, regimes working together. Um, and if we had had a different set of facts, we might have had a very different outcome. Cool. Yeah. So in 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 the last part of your paper, you you talk about how this patent antitrust dialectic is still a live issue before the court, in fact, has come up in relatively recent cases. So I, could, I was wondering if you could say a little something in closing about sort of where it stands today and how understanding Bement and the nature of the problem in the early years of antitrust law can help us better understand what's going on today. Yeah, no, that's a great framing of it. Um, so uh, the most recent Supreme Court decision in FTC versus activists um, sort of reaches some of these same ideas. We're sort of talking about how do patents and um, antitrust law interact, um, and dialectic is a, is a really good word for it. Um, and there we see a 5-4 decision from the court um, and a, a writing from Justice Breyer talking about how patents don't just automatically mean immunity, um, that we really need to think about the particular context of um, the licenses and issue or in that particular case, the settlements um, that we were talking about or contracts or whatever else the patent owner is doing and really situated in the time in the types of things that we want the antitrust acts to be policing. Um, and Justice Roberts dissent um, said that, you know, I think that licensees can do whatever they would like to do, see um, and then cite some cases that then cite Bement, not citing Bement um, exactly. Um, and so I think that there is some real tension um, even on the court about how we think about this um, interface and how we think about this overlapping um, uh, between patent and antitrust law. Um, and I think that it might just be how you see this, right? So do you see uh, patents as exclusive rights um, and then licenses um, can do whatever they like? Um, or do you sort of 
see um, licenses as um, things that are still going to be regulated by um, the concepts of the Sherman Act, even if it doesn't specifically spell out that it will be prohibiting these types of things. Um, and so I think we might see this continue to arise um, in, in different types of industries as we sort of examine um, what those industries look like and how we think these licenses are being created. Um, there's currently an FTC case against Qualcomm that's examining some very similar issues. There, um, There's some exhaustion issues, which is another topic that I've written on, uh, but that sort of brings in sort of um, similar questions of how far can contracts go, how far can licenses go um, in terms of um, protecting that patent owner's exclusive rights. Um, and those are very important questions. And I don't know that we've even scratched the surface on um, how far um, patent owners can go with their um, private um enforcement mechanisms like licenses or infringement suits um, and what the Sherman Act can police, right? It's been a long time since 1890. Um, yeah. And um, we've had a lot of very rich and very interesting factual cases. Um, and I think maybe this is a, a slightly unanswerable question, right? It's always mm -hmm. going to kind of be, um, where are we today? Um, what do the facts of this case suggest? Um, and how are we going to make this decision? Right. Well, as is so often the case, uh, it seems like everything old is new again. That's huh? right. That's right. That's why I love these historical cases. <laughs> well, Amelia, it's really been great talking to you about your paper. Um, and I hope a lot of people who are interested in the podcast will check it out because it's really a fun read. Great. Thank you. My friend Como come up to me the other day and he say, Hey, trust Clark, what I gonna done with this yo car, man? Como, I say you take that thing over at Bajron Plymouth. They'll give you a big trade on that relic for a new Plymouth there. And man, they got some Plymouth to choose from, with bargain price, too. And you know what he said to me? He said, Man, this thing don't run. So I said, Push it. Hey, but push it fast over there to Bajron. These special don't gonna last forever. Bergeron Plymouth, bedrooms at Lakeside. Bergeron wants your business. They'll trade to get it and work hard to keep it. <laughs>